All right, hello and welcome everybody. Uh, today we've got a very uh, a special guest for a very special episode. This is episode 77 of Sotscast, for those who are counting along at home. This is uh, the, year, the year 2022 by the Anna Domini calendar. Uh, we're coming up very, very rapidly on the first of 5 CE by those who like to count a different way. That's right, next uh, Wednesday is the beginning of the fifth year. 10.24 a.m., 12.17. Uh, and, and how are you today, sir? Great, great, man. Saturday. It's beautiful. Thanks for the call. I'm excited to uh, hear all the Sotscast episodes. Yes, I think it's I think it's going to be uh, a bit of a holiday treat, you know. The the goal actually is to uh, to release episode eighty today, count our way up to eighty nine, and then drop down to seventy. You know, it's going to be it's going to be an odd sort of a, a situation like that. So yeah, jump around, yeah. It, well, yeah, exactly. I mean, I I used to like just sort of jumping around at random, but then the problem is it can be difficult to tell where you've been. So so I like to sort of descend to take take a decade at a time just sort of get the vibe and then and then sort of time travel back a little further you know yeah you need a plinko graph did you say plinko graph plinko okay go on go on that's a, that's a word i'm unfamiliar with it'd just be like uh sort of like the it'd just be a, the graphing of the stochastic stochastic uh path you took to jump around so you don't actually read you know accidentally redo an episode uh right right, right. it prevents it prevents sort of any sort of uh over recursion um now stochastic stochastic is a word that uh some of us might know but others might not could you could you uh define that or just sort of give a general idea on, on that before we before we sort of dive right in well hopefully i'm gonna talk about this. yeah it's it's sort of like a randomly determined um outcome so it's like i guess maybe the outcome would be sort of um derivable in hindsight but the way it sort of manifests is random interesting you're talking about like non-true randomity like where there's a there's a hidden algorithm but it but it appears to be random that, that that could be the case. That could be the case for sure. That's that's always that's true, right? Because when you like when you're in the experience of things, you're looking around, all kinds of stuff is happening. Oftentimes, there seems to be no rhyme or reason to it, or any pattern whatsoever. And of course, there's like the cycles of nature and so on. But as far as like circumstance, happenstance, occurrences, those appear to be sort of like unmotivated. Uh, by by previous events, but then but then if you like look back over your life, you see like these recurring like oh I did that sort of thing kind of before, but not exactly. And then you're like, how are those connected, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess it could be sort of like a uh, an agnostic way to say synchronicity too. Sure. Mm. Mm, right, right. As in, okay, right, because when you because when you're talking about synchronicity, there's there's an element of belief to it. It is sort of a. Would you consider like synchronicity to be a religious belief, or would that be taking it too far? I guess it'd be a religious emotion, right? You know, like the. I think the three religious emotions are awe, apocalypse, and 
can't remember the other one. But yeah, so there's like a category of religious emotions. And so I would say, yeah, it's not religious. It's not bound to any religion. But but yeah, I don't know. I guess it would be sort of an ecstatic, um, what would you call that? Not necessarily out of the body, but, but it would be like a, it's like a glimpse of the flow state. It's like everything lines up. But I mean, I guess if it's not a good synchronicity, then it can be sort of a harbinger of something. And either way, so then you're, you know, then you're, you're out of the awe and you're into the, you know, the apocalyptic. Right. Okay. So what would you say is the dividing line between awe and, and the apocalyptic? Kairos. So like the qualitative aspect of time. Um, so it would just be, and I guess synchronicity is sort of governed by that as well, but it's just like, so for instance, like, um, when, when we get in loops, we get sort of, you can think yourself into an affective sort of state or you can find yourself in an affective state, which tends to have thoughts that tend to occur in that affective experience. So like an affect has a lexicon. So certain words are used when you're having a certain feeling that aren't used when you're not having that experience. Um, so the qualitative aspect of time, whenever an affect sort of takes over or like uh, just sort of dominant sub personalities sort of rear up and, and want to make, make you have a bad day or make you have an ecstatic day. Um, it tends to reorganize everything in a different way. So it's like, you know, oh, they're always like this. They always do that. They they never say that. Or, you know, it's always this way here. So that's sort of like the, the Kairos aspect of, you know, time. But it changes, obviously. The qualitative aspect of time changes. So it's like your affective state is going to sort of filter the temporal and the now experience. Does that make sense? I think so. I think so. So you're, saying, you're talking about the... The subjective, well, okay, so that you're using actually like an entirely different, almost like sub-language, depending on the type of circumstance you're finding yourself in. Is, is this sort of sort of the case of it? Right, right. right. so like, um, you know, like um, depression. Um, so like hypo versus hypermania, you know, you've got depression versus this like, sort of abundance of energy and so those are sort of two extreme states but then you've got you know the subpersonality the the, the the minor character the minor key and the major key of experience but you know they're not the only experiences I'm just saying like certain emotional states have a somatic load they sort of have a you know a tactile uh, feel to them you know you may feel heavier lighter you're you know hot cold uh, uncomfortable, anxious, lethargic. And so when they sort of combine in their readily perceivable form, then that tends to filter language in a certain way. Uh, in other words, ad hoc, after the fact, you begin to commentary on your experience, oftentimes unaware that we're in a shifted, you know, sort of effective mood. Um, but yeah, it's Kairos is, is just the opposite of Kronos. Not the opposite, but it's like the, the counterpart. So, you know, Kronos is sort of like 
you know, Saturn, matter, entropy, invariant laws, and then Kairos is sort of like the ultra uh, interest subjective experience of the moment for you. There we go. There we go. In, inside you. Right, right. And then that's sort of, um, you know, and then the bridge to that is like, you know, the outside world is um, really, it is emotion, you know, the, the outside, the bridge to, to all those things. But uh, yeah, Kairos is just um, how we think time works in the moment when we're sort of gripped by a subpersonality or, or a strong emotional pattern a recurrent you know in other words a familiar that you know it's like oh shit here we go again you know with this or that or whatever well right exactly and when you when you very first brought up this topic it, it occurred to me i mean the sort of the circumstance that immediately came to mind was like all right what's a what's a type of word or a group of words that you only use in certain situations but for a lot of people uh or perhaps you know like for example, there's 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 the category of terms known as profanity, right? That are oftentimes engaged in only in moments of either extreme pain or extreme pleasure, you know? Right. Also, uh, just as an aside, the the part of the brain that deals with cursing is also um, the same part of the brain where you um, let's see, warning. So when you're like in the extreme morning and then um there's another sort of like radical state but it's it's sort of like the um you know the ultra superlative you know cussing's a really interesting sort of cognitive tale i don't know what it i don't know what it tells but it's it's yeah what you're saying well, right, and, and it varies from person to person, and definitely culture to culture too. But but for the at least, okay, so like I've got I've got a predominantly uh, Christendom, you know, like 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 Western half of the Earth sphere planet kind of background, and uh, and what you kind of find there a lot is that the the polite persons are those who are like consider themselves hoity-toity, a little morally uh, superior to the rest. They might reserve those terms for moments of great duress. Or perhaps in the utter privacy of erotic abandon, you know. Whereas, whereas for those more like well, myself, at at certain ages, you know, at, on the radio I try to turn it down a little bit just so we can not get the explicit uh, marking on 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 Spotify for every single episode. Uh, but you know, I like to drop a, a, an f bomb basically every every fifteen to twenty minutes, you know, because that's sort of the piratical way. And but pirates are just a subset of of sailors, you know, and to curse like a sailor, like that's that's one everyone knows. It's like they just they just don't stop. They're always in pleasure or pain, right? Right, right, yeah. Um, you're sort of you're sort of uh, partially obstructing your microphone um, while you were speaking, but yeah, right, right. Well, and then. You know, sailors are navigators. You know, I mean, pirates are basically like, uh, uh, what would you call them? The Cabernetis. Um, they're the original sort of cybernetic nomad, you know? The intrepid cybernetic uh, navigator. Okay. I, I kind of like the way you put that. Could you could you uh, expound on on what, how you use the word cybernetic in that context? I think I think I understand, but just to be sure. So 
I mean, I guess, you know, cybernetics is a, is a science of control, monitoring, um, sort of knowing what the input and output is. So, like, the example is, um, I think it's uh, Michel Sayers talks about it in one of his books. But so if you're, a, if you're an oarsman and you're, you know, piloting a little ship, you've got the oar in your hand. You're standing there, you've got maybe um, the ropes, you know, the tack ropes for the sails in another hand, or they're lashed nearby. And so you're feeling the, the feedback of the water on the oar, and all of that's locked into this sort of proprioceptive loop of how you sort of um, incrementally adjust. And then on top of that, so there's like, you know, you're, you're steering the ship, you're keeping your heading and at the same time you have to sort of project where your heading is so you're keeping up with like where you are and where you're going and all the things that you know work to your you know benefit and um detriment so um okay so you're talking this is this is this is like it's essentially like a language of feedback mechanisms, right? Right, exactly, right, right. So, so yeah, it's just real time feedback. You're monitoring the uh, course. You're monitoring whatever it is. You're just monitoring uh, the real time. And of course, like you know, like the history of I don't know from from mysticism and science and alchemy to science could be the the history of the closing of the gap into real-time monitoring so it's like you'll never be monitoring in truly real time but the closer you can get to real-time feedback then you know obviously the more cybernetic the more um networked it is so like the evolution of scientific you know scientific instruments the, the evolution of the laboratory laboratory equipment is essentially the the evolution of the, the time gap between monitoring what you're monitoring and then um, sort of the summation of the of the yeah the feedback what it means rendering it into a readout sorry I'm not a scientist Are you are you setting up a ladder? Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, yeah, I'm moving some stuff around in the in the woods behind a behind a pool house. This lady's probably is like a mile long. Okay, so I think I'm I think I'm starting to get the picture of this. So basically, and here's maybe I'll ask for one more point of clarification because I've heard. They, they talk about uh, first order, second order, third order cybernetics. I've even heard of fourth order cybernetics. What is? Do you know what those distinctions kind of really refer to? Is that is that something specific, or do people just? I mean, what is that? Yeah. So first order would be sort of just like a uh, top down control, like pure hierarchy, like uh, you know, there's only one control point. And then second order 
cybernetics arises when they realized, I think the guy's name was Kubi. Um, but at, at, at like a Macy's conference, somebody was like talking about control and observation. And this person pointed out that technically every observation point is a control point. So that's where the loop sort of comes into cybernetics. So the original cybernetics were missile defense systems, missile trajectory system. So it was just like you're going from one point to the other. <laughs> and then second order cybernetics comes around in the early 70s. It begins to incorporate uh, biology. And, uh, you know, just the real time instantaneous, you know, nonstop, never ending feedback and monitoring. Third order cybernetics, I think, has to do with actual digital low voltage communication systems themselves. So more explicitly integrating modeling and computers. Uh, the, you know, the other fascinating stuff about all this is that it was a metaphysics before it was a science. It was just a, a speculative, you know, agenda. They were just like, how could we better monitor these things and know these things. So the, the ability to model this stuff was very crude until, you know, until the late eighties or whatever. But let's see, the first thing that was modeled was of course, nuclear war. Um, and then the second thing that was modeled was, uh, like resources ecology the limits to growth limits to growth club of rome so which you know those are sort of the two the two threats you know the two main threats but yeah so i guess game theory is a big part of maybe the third order but yeah it's been a while since i've really which in that stuff, but the way I was using it was sort of to parse my experience of sort of becoming sentient inside of, you know, the newosphere, you know, the the global casino brain, the, the internet, the matrix, whatever you want to call it, and realizing like, you know, oh shit, there's like a whole nervous system spread out over the, the earth and the, the world's been turned into some kind of brain and if that's the case then what is that you know what are the thoughts of that brain what is that brain thinking what does it want what does it do what are its desires and fears yes yes and, and speaking of becoming sentient in the new sphere if you've got someone in your life who's only now becoming sentient in that new sphere i mean I mean, not that they weren't sentient before, but you know what I mean? There comes a point in every child's life where you realize you can't really teach them all. You've got to get someone who can teach them more or at least has more time on their hands to do it. Well, that's why I'd like to introduce uh, our first sponsor of uh, today's show, Gnosis Tree Academy. 
NosusTreeAcademy.com is, is where you can find them. Yes, yeah, so this is for this is for the young coyotes in your life. If your child is drawing on the walls, why not take them to uh, our wonderful academy where they can learn to sigilize their intent in a manner that is respectful to the environment. If your child is bouncing off the walls, why not why not take them to an academy where they can spend a little time every day in silent meditation. Uh, that's GnosisTreeAcademy.com. Gnosis spelled with a G, for those of you who know what I mean. Uh, yes, uh, chaos, chaos has, uh, has a curriculum too. Uh, so, so, uh, Zumi, you were saying, you were saying basically that, that, that in, yeah, there's this sort of technological element to cybernetics, but then there's also the sense of just the subjectivity of like, you're inside of the world and the world is kind of like a sentient machine. Is that right? Uh, I mean, yeah. So, you know, the, I guess what brings a lot of us together is the, the subreddit sorcery the spectacle and that was sort of a, uh, a sociological query into metaphysics and mysticism and occultism um, based on I had a spontaneous Kundalini Shakti so I just woke up one day in like an extreme you know Samadhi state that lasted months and everything glowed and I didn't know anything about religion or mysticism or I thought all that stuff was stupid and so and, and actually also it was the, it was the 1st of January 2012 is the day I woke up uh, I woke up <clears throat> it was unbidden um, I wasn't studying anything I didn't care about that stuff so it was it was an odd experience but it I, I was taking um, part of that. I'd taken some sociology courses, some uh, philosophy courses, because I like to just talk about interesting stuff. I didn't really think it was important. I just enjoyed sort of like the spirit and the charisma of talking about, you know, essentially abstract objects. But I wasn't spiritually minded. I didn't think it had a place in the world. I just thought it was sort of like a puzzle. Like playing a video game, it's like you talk about philosophy like you would, you know, play solitaire on your phone. It's not important. It doesn't do anything, but I'm just sort of good at it. Um, so I had some exposure to Foucault, Baudrillard, critical theory, a lot of the, you know, Emile Durkheim, Max Weber, the, all of the founders, Marx, all the founders of, of sociology. And so when I had my experience, I went back and tried to marry it with um, my favorite was Baudrillard, by the way. But but I tried to marry it with occultism because I was having an esoteric meditative experience. So I was trying to figure out that side of things. Um, so sort of the mythology of everything being connected. Um, but it, it really ultimately came down to what Debord, you know, says the mediation everything is mediated by images which is actually a really it's a really profound shift that i mean to this day i don't think people really truly appreciate the the anterior of of the linguistic aspect of thought so everybody gets sort of the the bug when they 
figure things out and they make connections and they want to cram everything into language and they want to start playing all the language games. And then they get into Buddhism and, you know, whatever analytic philosophy. And, and they think that sort of by refining um, their predication system, their ability to, to, to correspond their statement with reality, that they're going to sort of, you know, hit some critical mass where, you know, something is going to happen. Sort of, it's, it's the conflation of, of will with knowledge is really what, what that sort of linguistic, that's the, the barrier of sort of being uh, sort of too blinded by the linguistic aspect. But, but the image is also, um, it's, it's the larger, it's the more profound, it takes up, you know, probably more cognitive gray space than the linguistic aspect. Um, so like, for instance, you know, iconoclasm is, is sort of like the word gets the image. Well, the image until, you know, 3000 years ago, 2,500 years ago, the image was really the, the, the imagistic, the imaginal, the vignette, the theatrical scene of things, um, anthropomorphism, rendering all ideas, concepts, experiences through the the primordial symbolization of theriomorphic deities, anthropomorphic deities, you know, part part human, part animal, uh, you know, supernatural human. But everything was sort of a an embodied, uh, independent, willed, agentive you know, thing unto itself. And then the image <clears throat> is sort of violently supplanted by, you know, this apophatic space of syntax and language, which comes really, really late. So, so the face, the human face is replaced by the exagram, which is the generic term for a, a, a written symbol. So any alphanumeric symbol uh, in any language is basically an exagram. Um, so the, the exogramic development of, of our, you know, cognitive experiences is very, very infantile and nation. And so through that sort of um, singular fascination with meaning and syntax and predication and correspondence with, you know, geometry and mathematical language, instrumentation the evolution of you know science and the laboratory we eventually arrive at you know the film projector <clears throat> so like world war one freud um carl Jung, they discover the unconscious which is essentially the return to the image um and we've been you know sort of being we're being resubmerged at a, at a rapid pace back into image-based cognition, image-based, um, perceptual economy, sensorial economy. Um, but because there's sort of a, a 2000-year juggernaut of this other type of literary um, disposition baked into our logistics and architecture, you know, public education is a great example, uh, sort of one of the mainstays where we still see the, the focus on the syntactic and the exogramic. But, but yeah, so, I mean... It, it's it's in an antiadromia. So we we run the we run the letter um, into its singularity saturation point, 
and then it becomes the image skin. And if you think about the internet, I mean, that's, you know, basically the exogramic um, syntactical way of, of putting things in the diachronous temporal mode, which is one thing after the other, the sequential, then this happens, then this happens, and this happens, then this word is after that word and that word, and that makes a sentence. That process, if you run it fast enough and you have enough of them running at the same time, then they're no longer in series. They are in parallel, and the Internet is basically just a, an infinite, vast, alphanumeric you know, ocean that turns everything into uh, you know, unparsable alphanumeric statements that then reappear as memes and images and, you know, text and, you know, the, the, the gooey interface and, you know, the, the, the sort of the aesthetic end user form of, of what we see when we sit down to look at our phone or our computer. So, yeah, the, the spectacle or whatever um, is sort of like the the unconscious grappling with the return to the image while being you know radically steeped in an environment that demands a sort of syntactical uh, disposition. Definitely, definitely, because you, you basically it's like you're dealing you're dealing with linguistic phenomena. Almost, I mean, for a lot of us, almost entirely, given given the sort of way that uh, that digital technology is sort of, I mean, because you're always you're always encountering it through words, you know. Except for except for like right now on the screen in front of me, it's got waveforms from our audio and and like the numbers of how how long we've been recording. But most of the time, when you're looking at a screen, which for a lot of people is a large part of your day, there's words there, right? And it's someone talking to you, or you're in a conversation with someone, and you're constantly switching these syntactical modes, you know? Right, right. Yeah, and then, you know, the, the keyboard is sort of a... sort of a, a good proxy for, for the return to that, because you're sort of doing everything at once with both hands, so you're sort of sur surpassing the, the analog literary mode, and then you're staring at you know, the real-time rendering of your intention at the keyboard, and that you know the screen has text, but it also has icons, so it's like both the things are there. But you know the way this fascination with the phenomenon of the word the logos as a you know a timeless entity is uh it's pretty fascinating because the gods are replaced by the dimensions you know time space depth um causality these invariants arise that are not agents of entities and so the the gods become materiality but that materiality isn't present because it's timeless and it's invariant it's perfect it's whatever never ending never beginning uh and so it becomes a location or or maybe a you know topology that isn't here so that's sort of like the transcendent is both born and then rendered you know, 
whatever, lifeless, cold, cold, lifeless eternity. And, uh, you know, that's sort of what the computer does is help, it helps infinity invade the present um, based on the assumption to invariance, which again, that's why I got into cybernetics because I didn't, I can't remember how I stumbled into that stuff, but it's a way of attempting to understand in the syntactic mode, sort of the invariant mode. Um, it's cybernetics is sort of like the psych. It's the, it's the breath of life that's both inside and outside. So it's a, it's a powerful parsing mechanism because it helps you to understand. So the domination and the, the, the saturation of the syntactic with the, the syntactic. So another, again, it's sort of an, an antiodromia. It's a completion of, which is a singularity. I mean, it's like a singularity is, is epigenetic. It's uh, frequency based, you know, it's like, you do something once, that's fine. You do something a hundred trillion times, then it has sort of a irreversible, indelible, permanent mark on materiality, evolution, and so on. And that singularity is, you know, something permanently coming into existence or, or whatever. But a lot of times singularities are frequency based. They're not, they're a qualitative shift based on quantitative saturation which is sort of what the internet is. Um, but yeah, so now we're sort of like at war with invariance. We're at war with the timeless. We're at, at war with um, perfect form, which is what the basis of, you know, all coding language, all sort of permanent language. Continuity is the, is sort of the watchword there. Um, the shift of memory. So we, we went from sort of like memory as imagination, memory as sort of like a, an invocation via the muses and so on, daemons, entities of all sorts, um, calling on, you know, the muses or the entities to, you know, guarantee, you know, to um, make sure that I sing the song correctly, that I tell the story correctly. Um, so it was more of an imaginal creative process. Memory wasn't really, it was much more metaphorical. So it was a different type of continuity. But then when we get externalized memory through the printing press and the, that's what the enlightenment basically is. And humanism is essentially um, the Bible becomes the book and, you know, through standardization and the printing press and the industrial, um, the industrialized, uh, what's it called? Fordism, what's it called? Uh, the assembly line. So everything gets standardized. Everything becomes the same. That changes our notion of memory. And memory becomes this sort of like, you know, timeless, genderless, entityless domain, which becomes, you know, capital H history, which is, um, based on a certain type of continuity, but it's not generative. It's not creative. It doesn't 
make anything. It just sort of represents the quote unquote truth or the fact or the, you know, whatever. So I think that's been where my research has been the last few months is, um, is our changing notions of memory and the, the, the sort of the big climax of that is the memory theater of the Renaissance, which was an attempt to sort of merge ritual, like highly imaginal practices with the notion of externalized emblematic symbols to encode things in an embodied way. So it's, it, it was a, it was a, Intuitive, it was a folk version of cognitive science, is what the art of memory, the memory theater sort of um, gestures towards how, how memory works and how ritual works and how imagination works and how creativity works and, and so on. Um, but, but yeah, that was sort of sequestered off with the Rosicrucians and Freemasons. Um, and I guess, you know, the the rhetoricians and uh, you know the theater kept the uh, art of memory around, but for the most part, it was uh, it was shelved along with the books for a different type of memory. Right, because well, like for most of us, I mean, I mean, unless you're unless you're so lucky to go to to a fine academy uh, in your younger years as uh, as the the first the first sponsor for today's show gnosis tree academy uh a, a lot of us weren't taught in our youth uh how how to construct a memory palace or, or anything like this so, so we're just sort of like running off of instinct of like this is how i recall things here's how i hang on to like my life story but but you're you're sort of saying that there's I mean, and we, we do supplement it. We do have those external technologies. You know, if I look back at my old text messages, for example, I'll be like, oh, that's right. I said this to that person on that day and all that. But you're saying that, I mean, I, I think I heard two different technologies referred to. One is the constructed, uh, I guess, sort of like three-dimensional image that contains different different uh, sort of key points within it that you can sort of locate. And then the other is actually, were you talking about invisible entities like 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 beings that can actually like, uh, that that used to store store stories or poems for people to to sort of draw on. It's that's kind of hard to to nail down. They didn't store it. They 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 allowed you. They they uh, maybe endowed you with the ability to properly commemorate it. Uh, also. You know the the muses, the fairies. Um, you know they were all. They had a temple. They had a place. You know it was in a cave. It was on an island. It was near a spring. So it was an actual boundaried place. Um, I'm, there's a Renaissance painting, and I'm not. I can't recall the name offhand, but. But that's, you know, it was not just like some people you called on. You were also calling on that place. So you were sort of like calling on the, the particularity of that place, what was stored there. And they were authorizing you to, I guess, access it from, you know, but I wouldn't say an etheric realm because I don't think we had those notions until, you know, the Renaissance or, or near then. 
but yeah, they were more like um, lawyers. They were you know, legal advisors. They made sure that you said what you're supposed to say and didn't say what you shouldn't say. Okay, it's almost like it's almost like because before you mentioned the sort of the theater uh, parallelism to this. Uh, it's almost like having the little guy in the prompt box at the front of the stage who will like help you if you forget your lines or something. Right. Well, so that's not what they were. That was encoded through metonymy and uh, you know the rhetorical practices of memory. There's tons of different kinds. There's a book called The Memory Code, and the lady mostly talks about the Aboriginal. But there's like uh, the peripatetic. So Aristotle, you know, was a big fan of walking around. So there's proprioception, um, as well as, you know, so there's the memory theater of sitting still. There's a memory theater of moving. Uh, or the schools, I guess. The schools. So it's like one memory theater would be uh, the, the physical exterior that you're looking at. So you would have to be sort of in that place or you'd have to perfectly recall that place to go back through the paces to see all the icons in the landscape to recall the memory. Then the other one is the purely imaginal, which is um, the uh, Flammarion engraving, the world soul, Anima Mundi. So the Anima Mundi, like the whole purpose of that aesthetic was, you know, to sort of like exemplify what what a, a memory theater could look like. So you had the purely imaginal, and then you had the, the sort of transitional, you know, environment-bound version. And then you had the standing still versus, uh, you know, moving version. But, uh, sorry, I may have lost the plot. No, 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 no. I think, you, I think you're right onto it. So basically what I'm, what I'm hearing here is, is there's all sorts of different modes, approaches, technologies that a person can, can use to sort of, essentially maintain more memory than their biology is sort of naturally capable with or with their like current level of, of traumatization or whatever, you know, that sort of diminishes memory oftentimes or, or sort of like enhances a particular segment that just sort of repeats. Uh, but each of each of those sort of like, like the circumstances being in battles, getting beat up, things like that, you know, you sort of, you lose pieces of your past every time that happens to you, but using these technologies, these people who led very violent lives were able to like maintain like a full recall, almost like superior to most persons today. Don't you think? Perhaps. I mean, I know that it, when it's perfected, it's, you know, it's quite a, quite a feat, but you know, I think you brought up a, a great, you know, there's the, uh, sort of false memory syndrome, uh, oftentimes brought up in concert with the satanic panic of the eighties. But what we know about memory now is that, you know, recall is like, is a cartoon. Like you, there is no perfect recall. There is no sort of like objective, like never changing invariant. Like it's always been the same. So, and, and what this does is it, it basically corroborates the, so if you, if you read Francis Yates, uh, you know, Giordano Bruno, on uh, Art of Memory, you know, the, the two different texts that she's got about that stuff where, you know, she's got more than that, but those two do with it a lot. And Bruno wrote tons of books on not just memory, but sort of like this whole, I mean, he sort of was the the master of that weird, like, 
folk uh, cognition, emblematic, you know, alchemy, cartoon science or whatever. But, you know, the way that memory theater works is through the pure intersubjective. So it's like it's ultra personal to you. So you're sort of pulling in these emblematic um, icons, which may be shared out in the world, um, you know, completely standard symbols and, and emblems and whatever. But then you're purposely um, sort of bootstrapping them to your emotion. A strong emotion of any kind is the most valuable when you read the literature on this stuff, the art of Victoria and all of this, the ways of sort of inducting uh, an optimal memory storage, you know, moment. It's, it's all about, it's like the opposite of, of uh, sort of like grammar and um, science and learning. And it's, it's all about your personal experience, your personal um, sort of uh, archive of, of personal icons, you know, your, your parents, your home, know town the, the road to your house the your first toy whatever it is it's things that stand out in your memory uh that just will never be forgotten by you personally you use these things to merge them with um exterior emblems pre-existing emblems to anchor them in you know the memory palace so the you know the tactility the scent, you know, you engage as many senses as possible and you want to heighten uh, emotion. And I think that's a key to magic in general, uh, mystical experience, meditation, any type of active meditation you want to get, or even a flow state for, for, for that matter. Um, it doesn't really matter if, if the emotion is, quote, negative or positive. It's just the um, sort of the amplitude. So it's like you want maximum whatever. You know, you don't want to sort of be happy or sort of in awe or sort of mad or sort of sad. Like you want to be at the peak. You want the meter in the red of that emotion. And then that's going to sort of guarantee the bonding process. Um, so that is also obviously you know, something that's present in trauma. PTSD, CPSD, you know, what's it called? Uh, attachment, what's it called? Um, erratic attachment or whatever, where it's um, sort of confused. You've got a, a bad attachment sort of relation, what Jung would call an anima. But, but yeah, so, so in other words, what we know about memory... Um, and their formation is that rote repetition only does so much and it's actually about the embodied state and and more so it's about the conscious sort of uh, metacognitive awareness of the embodied state that that plays a, a big role in in that in that form of memory but yeah so really what it is is what we're really saying is that Perception and imagination, um, and, and you know the sensorium, tactility, and so on for perception, movement, the shape, your you know the mudra of your body. All of these things are key to memory. But I would say that you know memory, perception, and imagination are one thing. You know 
they're not one thing, but they're you can't have one without the other. And then, but but perception is sort of like the place you would want to go. It's the domain you'd want to clean up if you wanted to have different experiences. You wouldn't you wouldn't fuck with your memory. Um, you would let that change after the fact by you know modulating your perception through you know you know some kind of you know meditation, Buddhism, uh, you know Abhidhamma, you know just like sort of noticing, breaking down the clashes, like figuring out how input comes into your life and you know another interesting sort of contrast is like the eastern systems yoga buddhism taoism tantra they're acutely aware of the particulars of of intersubjectivity and sort of like the emotional affective aspects of experience whereas that's like sort of deliberately shunned uh in in the western intellectual development and then the more so we get closer to the present day the more emotion of any kind is anathema. So basically what's happening is the sort of just workaday memory system is totally fucked up and cluttered up because we're, we're sort of trained by proxy through observation to suppress all emotions that aren't basically gratitude, happiness, uh, complacency, well-behaved you know, type of expressions. So any complex emotional state is shunned you know, de facto by the age of seven or eight, we all learn through just being in the environment that, you know, we don't have time for you to be sad. We don't have time for you to be confused. We don't have time for you to be scared. It's time to, you know, get on the bus and learn things and, you know, read the, the sentence on the page and, you know, clean yourself up, get yourself together. Uh, you know, everybody else isn't crying. Everybody else isn't upset. So we learn at a young age, um, you know, to, to suppress difficult, complex emotional expressions. So those become the underworld of, uh, of our experience. But then at the same time, they're not just the underworld. They're, they're like a, you know, a, a muddled up aspect of our machinery that just gets totally fucked up with, you know, fucked with and tinkered up, um, you know, whatever. Just we don't do maintenance on that part of our neurophysiology and so by the time you know people are 25 30 years old they're just you know a total fucking weird nightmare cartoon um you know that, that only they for the most part know about think about experience they don't really share it with many people maybe a therapist maybe some friends but for the most part we we push our our negativity down which just makes everything worse but then because there's no system for uh you know that's why I like the alchemical metaphor in, in the development of Western occultism. I thought it was the most sort of useful and just beautiful and aesthetic and enjoyable and truly creative because it works with the concept of transmutation, transubstantiation, transubstantiation. Uh, so that, that sort of singularity, quantitative, qualitative shift, but we don't have that anymore. Um, I guess Jesus was, sort of a proxy kind of for you know all of the bad things but there still wasn't articulation of the particulars and there's really not any you know good system until the you know 60s and 70s when the sort of the the yogic revolution happens in the west and then we get the the aquarian conspiracy um, 
you know, new age sort of ascendant uh, crystal love and light stuff. 